The holy apostles proclaimed that this same one is God, who was born in Bethlehem of the seed of David according to the flesh, who became like man, and who was crucified for man under Pontius Pilate. The same is man, the same is Son of God, the same is Son of Man, the same is from heaven, the same is from earth, the same is impassable, the same is passable. For the Logos himself, who was born from the Father above in a manner ineffable, marvelous, incomprehensible, and eternal, the same was born in time here below of the Virgin Mary, that those who, were, who before were born from below might be born again from above, that is, of God. The Emperor Justinian. Welcome, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi to talk the Second Council of Constantinople. We know you've been waiting for it. Zellin, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. I'm kind of having some unusual weather for my gratuitous weather posting. It started snowing again on Easter and kind of snowed a lot yesterday on Easter. Well, let's see, Easter Monday. We're recording this on Tuesday. So I'm just trying to deal with all of this snow still. And you're probably getting ready to go into spring. But yeah. Right. <laughs> well, not quite. So you've got snow in your economic zone and in, <laughs> and in mine. <laughs> We we actually are expecting some snow tonight and tomorrow, if you can believe it. But huh. nothing that's going to stick. But the soil is still a bit too cold to be out planting, and so so we wait. Uh, but we'll we'll get there. It's been a rainy storm. We've had some, even some hail because nothing's more comforting than a storm during a time of pestilence and volcanoes and tornadoes. And of course, we do, uh, in all seriousness, want to remember the people in the South who, I guess, as of this recording, just yesterday were were uh, ravaged pretty heavily um, by tornadoes. So very interesting uh, weather posting this week, to say the least. You know, hopefully you can get your garden in by about June, July, something like that. Well, that's pretty standard anyway. But yeah, see, weather posting isn't just, you know, a way to get started. It's actually fairly interesting information, especially in these unusual times. <laughs> right. You gotta, you know, you, you gotta know which way the wind blows, folks. You gotta, you gotta pay attention to the weather. Pay attention to your garden. Get your hands dirty. That's the spiritual advice we have here at Word Fitly Spoken. And it is Pretty true. Much. You know, and, and you know, we'll see how the almanac fared uh, towards the end of the month. So have you, uh, <laughs> have you even started tilling or anything yet? Or are you just waiting to do it all? There's, uh, there's no point. Um, it's, <laughs> right. it's just too cold. So we'll just get started in late May, early June. Like we always yeah, do. We got the, we got everything tilled up, kind of expanded this year, but I'll have to retail, you know, in a few weeks when we're able to actually get out there and do it. But Hey, that's the way it goes. And thankfully, uh, we can still buy seed and plants, uh, for the time being here in this sector. Press F for Michigan, but go on. <laughs> yeah, more people in Michigan. I don't, I'm sorry. And Vermont. Vermont. Live oh, free Vermont or die. Too. Okay. Yeah. Live. They've been doing it since the beginning, as I understand it. Man, I remember America, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it is it is interesting that we're talking about despots as we go into this discussion on the Second Council of Constantinople, because as much as I talk about liberty and freedom, I'm going to contradict myself bigly uh, when we talk about Justinian the Great. Uh, Justinian the first, because he is going to take some draconian measures to ensure that orthodoxy, 
that the faith once handed down to all the saints is actually um, implemented within his empire. You think that's a fair assessment? And it's an, a fair assessment of several of his predecessors, too. So, yeah, live for your die, yet we're kind of thankful <laughs> that we had these these guys who just said, no, this is the way it's going to be. That is the tension, you know, and, bef- and we've got, this is going to go on for a couple episodes, folks, so bear with us. But this is an interesting tension, because we do like the idea of religious freedom. Right. And, and yet, it seems as if the faith is sometimes better protected under a godly emperor or king. Than under a than under representatives, really depends on where you are and and the state that the nation that you're in, or the state that you're in, or the nation state that you're in. If you're a pre Civil War American, and <laughs> and so this is just really actually something for us to think about because there are a lot of questions of religious liberty being bandied about right now in our churches and in every church. You know, to what degree does the government have the authority to regulate how we worship and what we say and what we do, how we administer the sacraments, how, you know, how we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God within context of a of an emergency, a state, you know, a nationwide emergency or pandemic or whatever we want to call it. So it just might be that this history does speak to us a little bit, but I think it's I think it's not incorrect to say that we don't have a Justinian in a governor's mansion right now. No, nowhere and, near. <laughs> and so <laughs> so then that you know, what does that mean for us? We have to hope that God you know speaks to these governors and that more importantly they listen to what God would have them do. And and so not an easy thing to be a governor, that's for sure. So I'm sure that these people don't make these decisions lightly and yet sometimes you uh, listen to the news and you wonder, okay, well, who is giving you advice? <laughs> and how did you come to this conclusion? And so, you know, we've probably done enough Fed posting here at the beginning, I guess. But <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's helpful because as we go into this discussion of the, the history behind the Second Council of Constantinople, we're going to be running into all kinds of examples where you do have what we might consider to be despotic or like state dictating to the church kind of situations, but that's not at all how they would have seen it. And so we have Mm -hmm. to be careful as we're going into this, not to import our Americanism or our modern ideas of religious liberties into this and, and thereby color our impression of several of these efforts. You know, that's the thing. I think it's a much more fascinating discussion to see what, what the church actually did or was forced to do or how they complied or didn't comply under different governors and under Mm -hmm. different forms of government, rather than just talk about the church in the context of kind of vague concepts, you know, of, of liberty. Well, what does that mean? Or rights or this kind of um, imagined notion that this is nation is built only on proposition. Well, you can't build a nation on that. Nations are built up of people. And so, you know, what does that look like? And so we can get really just lost in the, well, we have this inalienable right. Well, okay, but what has the church actually done when they didn't have access to these rights? Or what did the church do when the government exclusively affirmed Christianity, for example? I think that's a much more interesting and helpful discussion than, well, what could we do? And of course, at this point, you'll notice in, in our context, when this is being recorded, we're not really hearing a lot from you know some of these think tanks as much as we should, other than, well, it doesn't look too good for religious liberty right now. And that's about all you get. 
And so, you know, to, to actually say, okay, well, what did the church do? What did it look like under a godly emperor, for example? And we can see these, you know, all throughout history, you know, just from the early church with Rome on up into the later empire, like here with Justinian. But even, you know, more interesting, like once you get over into, um, you know, England and places, and then you get to their revolution and the Covenanters, how did they see the relationship between the nation and God? Very fascinating, but very concrete examples and all things I'm sure we'll discuss as we record more episodes. And this is exactly why it's going to take a couple episodes at least to get through all this material. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's good exactly. stuff, but it's there's a lot to unpack. So there's just a lot, and you know what? We got details, and we know you, the people, want details, and that's why we're here to bog you down with them. Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's open up then. Why don't you frame the context of the Second Council of Constantinople for us? Okay, so to frame the context of the council, we have to start actually before, and this is going to sound like we're going re really far back, but we actually have to start before the Council of Chalcedon, so before 453. And we have to actually rewind all the way back to the days of the Council of Ephesus, the third council, so I'd encourage you to go back and to listen to all the episodes that we've done before. But there was a figure then that we didn't really talk about that uh, was kind of on Cyril's mind. And that was a figure by the name of Theodore of Mopsuestia. He's kind of one of these niche theologians nowadays because, well, he ends up being condemned at the Second Council of Constantinople. A lot of his writings survive to the present day, but he was, he was regarded at least in antiquity as the father or the teacher of Nestorius. And so, but he was also extremely well regarded in his own day as being a very you know, influential kind of teacher. I think a lot of his problems stemmed from the fact that he was not very precise in the way that he talked, and he said a lot of things that could be misunderstood, which is why this kind of debate comes up. But you have the, the question of all of these things happening even before Chalcedon coming into the forefront in the years, you know, in and around Chalcedon and afterwards, which is really going to drive the whole debate at the Second Council of Constantinople. Is that a, is that a fair beginning? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the wounds from Chalcedon are still fresh at the time of the Second Council of Constantinople. Correct. Well, that's, and, and in all honesty, that's the whole reason why we have the Second Council of Constantinople, is because Chalcedon, as, you know, as wonderful as the definition was, didn't actually solve any of the tensions that were going on. I mean, yeah, we have a, a very beautiful declaration of what, you know, of orthodoxy of, you know, the two natures of Christ, but it was a, basically the definition was forged in controversy and therefore n nobody was really sure what it meant or what it meant for the empire. Sure. And this is a, this is a case where, and this is where guys need to really pay attention where even though, the ecclesiastical authorities say something is verboten mm -hmm. and, and and or anathema, it doesn't totally get rid of it overnight. Right. That 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 heretics will linger on and on because heretics don't care what authority says. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, but what do you do when the opposing sides are claiming the same authority? Now there's mm -hmm. a question. Because okay. 
the two parties at in this debate that we're going to be looking at over the next uh, hundred years or so between the uh, Chalcedon and between Second Council of Constantinople are well the Chalcedonians, which of course we would consider to be the Orthodox side, but also a group that we call the Monophysites. Uh, what do we mean by Monophysite, Willie? Yeah, the Monophysites are basically the people who say that Christ has a single nature. Right. right, so that he only has one nature, namely the divine. Right, and and so this is related to Nestorianism, which you know the debate around um, Christ's natures and how they how they relate to one another. Well, the Monophysites are like, well, it's not even a question. There's only one anyway. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, really, I'm reducing it down. Right, but that is the basic definition. And there are, I mean, good grief, at least ten or fifteen different monophysite groups. Right. Right. And and so we don't really have time to really talk about them, but by at least the 300s, the late 300s, you have these groups emerging. Right. Uh, and and so it's it's a thorn in the side for the church for some time. Still is. There's still the monophysite churches out there. Right. Uh, the Coptic Christians in the, the mon- in modern Egypt are generally monophysites. They even have their own pope, right. but that's beside the point. <laughs> right. But the, the reason why these two groups are, it's very interesting with this debate is because, one, they both claim the authority of Cyril, which is kind of where you know I started this whole definition. They both believe, believe themselves to be the spiritual descendants of St. Cyril and what he had said. But the Monophysites regard Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, as being something that effectively changed Cyril's meaning. In other words, they mm-hmm. believed that Chalcedon condemned Nestorius officially, but then twisted Cyril's ideas to become Nestorian in, in their kind of their import. So in other words, they regard the definition and the two natures that it, that it sets forth as being essentially Nestorian in character. And the Chalcedonians, on the other hand, regard the men of the monophysites as being essentially Eutychian. You know, this idea that you're just blending them together and you have just one kind of third thing that's kind of left over. Now, is this was this fair between the two groups? Well, that's kind of what we need to figure out. But that's what they at least convinced themselves of as of each other as time went on. That the other side was basically just raising up this particular a heresy and trying to make it into imperial law. And so the debate is going to go on throughout this whole time period. And we're going to see, it, like in the next section, how the various emperors are actually going to try to resolve this conflict one way or the other. So let's, since we have a few minutes in this segment, mm-hmm. can you make the case for the monophysites briefly? I mean, how do, how do they come to this conclusion? Well, they come to this conclusion because they believe that if we are talking of two natures in Christ, they're very, very afraid that that's going to lead to Nestorian ideas. Because at the uh, the Robber Council of Ephesus that we talked about a little bit in the uh, episode on Chalcedon, the one that was condemned, a lot of them had been saying things like, anathema to him who says two natures after the incarnation, cut him in two who divides Christ. 
which I think is a great saying. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and so because they had been real big about there's no such thing as two natures after the incarnation, because that's Nestorian, you know, that, you know, this idea that you are somehow dividing God from man and turning him into something that is neither so that, you know, God cannot actually save us. They're so concerned about this that they are pushing back against any notion of two natures, even an orthodox mm-hmm. notion of two natures. A lot of the ancient historians actually say that the debate in this actually centers around what they consider to be a single letter in Greek, two different prepositions, whereas the Chalcedonians would say that Christ is God in man in two natures, or en in Greek, epsilon nun, the monophysites would say that he is God in man from two natures, or ek, ek, or epsilon kappa. Mm-hmm. And, other, and so the, that sounds like it's a real hair-splitting definition, but what it's actually saying is, is, does Christ continue to exist in two natures within the, the, the incarnation, or do the two natures come together in such a way that we now have something else which is, you know, from two natures, the two of them coming together to produce Christ. Again, this is oversimplifying it terribly and probably saying things that, you know, I don't mean to say, but that's basically where the, the, the question comes down to. Is there two natures after the incarnation or not? And so that's where we are. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, yeah let me say this too, just to kind of clarify why a lot of this is going to go the way that it does. Monophysitism also becomes a very popular movement, whereas Arianism before had always kind of been at mostly the highest levels of society. You know, in a sense, you could say it was kind of a government problem, although there were, you know, Arians among the people too. I mean, don't get me wrong. Monophysitism takes on a strongly popular character, especially in Egypt and in, you know, kind of that general area. And so now you have a question of, you know, if you are Egyptian, you are, are you monophysite in some sense? I mean, is it kind of like a default position? And so you start to have these kind of national kind of ideas coming into play as well. And so it becomes a conflict, not only in the church and not only on the official levels up in the government, it also actually becomes a problem down on very popular levels. And we're going to see as we go ahead here, uh, actual physical violence erupting over this question. So this is mm-hmm. something that's actually kind of racking the whole empire in violence over this question. And we might think of it as being kind of hair splitting. And, you know, why would they get so worked up over this? But for them, it, it had greater significance than, than perhaps we can fathom. Well, that'll take us up to the first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking the Second Council of Constantinople. So, uh, we set up the context here. We know really where the sides are uh, in this debate. So now let's talk about the individuals, uh, particularly some emperors and some other um, very interesting characters. So, Zelwyn, tell me about Marcion. Well, and like we've done in previous episodes, what we're going to do for kind of until we get to the council is just kind of go chronologically in history so that we can see how the debate unfolds. Our listeners may remember that the Emperor Marcion is the emperor responsible for convoking the Council of Chalcedon. So he's the one that actually causes that to come about. There's not a whole lot left in Marcion's life because he's going to live until 457. But I do want to point out a few things that are kind of happening during his time period, which is actually the continued fall of the Western Empire. Because in in the West, for example, Valentinian III, on March 16th, 455, is actually assassinated at the order of a, uh, a couple of followers of a general that he himself had assassinated for fear of plotting against him the, the previous year. So you have all kinds of intrigue going on. You have all kinds of, you know, this kind of just general corruption going on. And so with the death of Valentinian III, the, the West is thrown into further chaos. And so in the same year, in 455, a man by the name of Petronius Maximus takes the throne and marries Lucinia Eudoxia, who is the widow of Valentinian, as a way of kind of establishing his power. But Eudoxia doesn't actually want to be married to him all that much, so she writes to a man uh, by the name of Gaiseric the Vandal, who was living in Africa at the time, to come help take care of this problem. So the Vandals, as a result, actually invade Italy, and during uh, that summer, on June 2nd, 455, Rome is captured again and plundered for two weeks. So you see the the West basically beginning to collapse and to fall and is beginning in larger, if in much larger segments to be ruled by Germanic tribes. But with all of that, Marcion being the one who actually convenes the Council of Chalcedon is generally regarded as an Orthodox emperor, you know, being Chalcedonian in his outlook. And even later monophysites would kind of lament the fact that he ever came to the throne. But that's beside the point. Do you have any questions about Marcion? Like I said, not much. Kind of, there's not much left for him after the, uh, the after Chalcedon. So no, no, all good. I kind of want to know about Leo now. <laughs> Leo the first, of course. Yeah. So Leo the first and uh, comes to power in 457. He's he's par- he's actually the beginning of a new dynasty because Marcion had died childless. Of course, that happens when you come to the throne at like 60. But so Leo is a general, he becomes the new emperor. And Leo is basically trying to hold things together a little bit more. You know, the Western Empire is beginning to fall. And the question of this conflict between the Chalcedonians and the and the Monophysites is actually beginning to increase to, again, to violent levels. Okay. Because like on March, in March 457, the Chalcedonian man, a Chalcedonian man by the name of Proterius, who is supposed to succeed Dioscorus in Alexandria, is actually lynched by a Monophysite mob. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the people are becoming so involved with this question that they actually lynch this guy simply because he's not a Monophysite. 
And so Leo is doing what he can to try to keep this all together. You also have at that time uh, the rise of a very interesting character by the name of Timothy the Cat, who is the new bishop of Alexandria and is probably also the one who murdered Proterius, or at least ordered the murder of Proterius. And he himself is actually a convinced monophysite. Well, that's an interesting name. Why would they call him the cat? Uh, because he's so shady. <laughs> right. As we were I talking mean, between the break, I'm pretty sure that the word used for cat can also be like a weasel or something like right. that. Especially, at least right. in this context, right? When we say cat, there's a lot of cat people out there. A lot of pastors posting pictures, selfies with their cats. It's an epidemic, really. So a lot of people out there view cats very positively. Right. But here, it's not meant, you're not clever, and you don't have nine lives or anything like that. A cat here is meant to be negative, like a shady, shady character. Well, when you basically get your position by murdering your predecessor, I think that's going to be frowned on by just about anybody. Which is how <laughs> most cats become pets. <laughs> And Willie says what he feels about cats. but There's just a lot of cat love. I'm just saying. I don't mean to derail, but there's an awful lot of cat love. And, it, and then there's, a, there's, a, there's even a little bit of dog hate, kind of a Muslim streak. Among, I don't care. There's, there's a barn cat who lives on the property here. He's good for mice. We have a peaceful truce, you know, but, and that's fine. You can, you can love your cats. I'm just saying. Don't, I'm just saying, don't read into Timothy the cat unnecessarily modern positive views. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. But but then again, dogs will be outside of the new Jerusalem. But that's beside the point. Yeah, dogs, yeah, dogs will frown upon <laughs> in the ancient East. So what do you do, fam? I don't know. What's the holiest pet you can have? I really don't know. Goldfish? Uh, uh, oh, I know what it is. Have children and you'll be you'll be fine. Children as pets. I'm not I'm not sure what I, where we're going with this, but <laughs> well it's more the other way around nowadays. Sure. Sure. Pets as children, right? <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so... Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Leo is trying to figure out what to do in this situation. He actually asks all the bishops in the, the empire what they think about Chalcedon, you know, how should we solve this issue? And they also ask him, what, what should we do with Timothy? The bishops say, let's all uphold Chalcedon and let's remove Timothy. So at this point, there's still a kind of very pro-Chalcedonian kind of feel among the majority of the, uh, the bishops in the empire. And so Timothy the Cat is exiled twice. I say twice because he's exiled and he still causes problems. So they exile him further out just so that he won't cause problems again. And he's replaced by a, a man also named Timothy called Timothy the White. <laughs> in this case, no. the White Hat, uh, a Chalcedonian. <laughs> so... That's kind of how Leo is dealing with a lot of these issues that are going on in the empire, especially over the questions of religion. I also think that it's interesting that Leo is noteworthy for decreeing on the 9th of December, 469, that Sundays are across the board days of rest, even to the point mm -hmm. some of the historians say that you can't play music. <laughs> now, is, that a, is there a Christian reason why he's doing this? Well, of course there is. I mean, he's he's very strongly trying to counter all kinds of pagan things that were happening, even on days on Sundays. He's also noteworthy because he's outlawing things like the beast fights. He's also outlawing the gladiatorial fights. 
you know, some of these things had been outlawed before, but now he's really just kind of cranking down on them and really putting an end to them. And he also says it's illegal to collect taxes on Sundays or to go to court on Sundays. It's really wholesome. It is. <laughs> Remember that time a certain podcast advocated similar positions once? You got all kinds of, of angry people. I don't know I what it. you're talking about, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> you can take your 19th century views and I'll counter with my 400s views. Um, hey, it's the a, consensus of the early church, right? There we go. That's what we want. Well, we like to just cherry pick. Just take what we want and keep it. Let's not pretend like some people don't do that with the Lutheran fathers, too. It is very interesting that this is a reaction to a perceived cultural neglect of rest and of the things of God. Mm -hmm. And so the remedy is make Sunday holy. If you won't make, if you won't hallow the day, the emperor will do it for you. And that, that sets a precedent that continues at least on up into the 20th century. Sure. Frankly. And I don't know, you know, it's of course going to be different depending on the emperors here, but relatively early on, you get this idea that Sunday is different. Imagine that. Yeah. I mean, we, it's interesting, and I do want to pause and talk about Leo's context and the context of these emperors. So he ends the games on on Sundays, right? Right. And, and or the gladiatorial stuff in general, he wants right. to get rid of. Is that correct? Right. Right. Well, like I said, he's that, not the only one that was doing it. No, he's no, no, really no. Cracking and, down on it. So and saints before him advocated these same positions. Like these games are not Christian. Right. They're not wholesome, and. It's it's rather interesting that in the modern era, we have adopted this idea that all sport is basically neutral. Mm-hmm. When the fastest growing sport in the United States is UFC, where you're just watching men break each other's faces, sometimes rather quickly, there is a one-to-one connection. I mean, UFC is a neutered form of ancient gladiatorial combat. And I, I just find that a little bit interesting, uh, sort of the, the same things that excited the Roman culture here is going to excite modern so-called Western culture today. And it, the parallels are just astounding to me. And I think that people's reactions to decrees like Leo's would be much the same. In fact, I know that they are. And and so maybe there is a case for soul searching here. Um, again, I'm not saying don't watch these things, and I'm certainly not saying no professional wrestling because it is the most noble and American <laughs> sport outside of outside of baseball. I'm just saying the country was better when we were a baseball nation, and I I will not listen to debate on that because I'm I can't be proven wrong there. Because <laughs> by and large, I mean we had our issues, you know, pre Jackie Robinson and all that, but. The point is, is that what entertains a culture is very, it informs us about the culture and very much affects the culture. And so Leo sees this as a problem, as did Christians before him. And they said, yeah, we really need to clean this up a bit. And again, I'm trying to just point out there that there, there may well be holy emperors in history, even though when you see how the sausage is made, so to speak, it gets a little bit grayer. Perhaps. Well, but you're never going to find a completely black or a completely white character, you know. Right, the, and, the that's, hat- and that's the thing. That, that's what we're always looking for, and it just doesn't exist outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, the of God course. man. Oh, of course, uh, yes. You know, <laughs> and, and, and maybe Adam for about a minute. 
but <laughs> but but beyond that, yeah, I mean, th- there are men who are who are sincerely seeking to do the right thing, and the measures they take kind of br- makes us bristle because we don't we don't like that. We all everybody wants the strong man until they get the strong man, right? <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, any more about Leo or Timothy or cat people? Or cat people. (laughs) Cat-faced people. Right. One thing that I should mention that we're going to come across again, there was another monophysite leader by the name of Peter the Fuller who was said to add for the first time the phrase who was crucified us to the Trisagion. Uh, The Trisagion being the, the important hymn even in Orthodoxy today, or Eastern Orthodoxy day of, you know, holy, 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 and basically attaching who has crucified us to the, the Son of God. Now, the reason why this caused an uproar is because it's an ambiguous enough statement, but the monophysites take that to mean that Christ as God is suffering on the cross. And that causes a debate and continues to drive forward this whole thing that we're going to see as it's going forward. So, you know, does Christ, for example, suffer only as a man, you know, when he's on the cross? Or does God, the unchangeable God, which is where the rub comes in, does the unchanging God also suffer death on the cross? You know, we tend to kind of blend the two together nowadays because I don't think we speak very precisely about this all the time. But, you know, you know, which is it? And and so the accusation becomes patripassianism, the idea that not just that God suffers, but that the father suffers. Right. Because you can't divide the Godhead. Right. 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 That That's the accusation here. Right. And if we say that God the Father died on the cross, we've actually, you know, we've come into heretical territory. I mean, there's yeah, there's just no way around that. So, <laughs> Right. But, you know, as you say, it's a rather ambiguous statement right. anyway. Right. And, and so people are reading these meanings into it then. Right. And then P- Peter's also noteworthy, and we're going to meet him a little bit later here too, because he seizes the Sea of Antioch the same way that Timothy the cat had seized the sea of Alexandria. So a lot of these monophysites are basically forcing their ways, forcing themselves into positions of power. Okay. But Leo's, mm-hmm. Leo then kind of concludes his life by crowning his young grandson, Leo, as the, the next emperor. And then he actually dies in the year 474. And then, yeah, so, so Leo II... Um, not much to say. There's the, yeah, there's very little to say about Leo II. His, his regnal year was 474. That's his whole reign because he dies. Yeah. Names his father, uh, co-emperor and then quickly dies. Right. He was also like nine at the time. So, and sickly, it seems to be like legitimate natural causes, right? Yeah, no, there's, there was never really any suspicion that he was poisoned or anything like that. He's just, he was a sickly young boy and his mother pressured him into making his father Zeno into co-emperor. So that's just kind right. of the way it went. So that, so that brings us to Zeno, not to be confused with Zenu, a very different character <laughs> in, 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 a, in another religion. So tell me about Zeno. Oh, Zeno, this is where things are going to get interesting. Uh, Zeno was the one of the kind of the generals of Leo, and he becomes his son-in-law when he marries his daughter. He's but he is also an Isarian, okay. And the Isarians are—I I don't know how else to describe them—but they were kind of viewed as being 
the uh, the hillbillies of the of the uh, Byzantine Empire. All right. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm making this personal, Willie, but <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. I'll be filing a HR complaint. <laughs> but Asaria was kind of northwest of Taurus, you know, where where Paul was, where Paul had grown up, and all that sort of thing. So kind of think south central Turkey today was where Asaria was. They were kind of their own little cultural group. They were kind of seen as culturally backwards. And all of a sudden, now we have an Asarian in control of the entire empire. And this is causing gigantic problems in the empire because nobody likes him. They don't want to be ruled by this, this hick as, the, as he's seen. And he's not all that great of a moral character to begin with. So what we see in his reign then between 474 and 491 is a series of increasing riots, increasing conflicts. Basically, everything is just absolutely collapsing during his reign. And on top of it, he decides that he's going to solve all of these religious problems by basically decreeing that the, the church is going to be monophysite now which we're going to get to. So he's no longer a Chalcedonian, but he is firmly in the monophysite camp, which again, doesn't endear him to anyone. Is that a, a fair start to him, Willie? Right. So both camps end up disliking him for different reasons. For different reasons. Yeah. And we'll get to those reasons right. why. But maybe as a way before, before we get into the break here, as a way of kind of transitioning, we want to also look briefly at the Western Empire um, and what's going on there. Because now... We see during the reign of Zeno, the final fall of the Western half of the Roman Empire. The last Western emperor, a man by the name of Romulus Augustulus, Augustulus kind of having a, you know, kind of uh, a not very good meaning, you know, little Augustus kind of a thing, you know, kind of making fun of him. He is defeated by the German Odoacer in the year 476. And so with his defeat, the West has fallen for the last time. Now, of course, they don't rec they don't realize that at the time. You know, you never really see these things as they're happening. But there would never be a Western emperor again, at least not a Western Roman emperor. Now, we're going to talk about Charlemagne much later, but that's a much different story. But the West has fallen for the last time, which means that at least in the West, uh, the early Middle Ages have begun. And so Germanic kings are striving to preserve their, their Roman institutions that they're inheriting. Some of them do it better than others, but, and a lot of them are, are Aryan in religion, but over time they would become uh, actually Orthodox and Catholic, especially with the conversion of Clovis, king of the Franks, in 496, which is going to lead us into the time of Charlemagne 300 years later. Now, Things aren't going real well in the West because the barbarians are trying to settle in, but they're still barbarians. They haven't really gotten used to the idea of being, you know, settled, living in one place. And so you have this increasing violence, this increasing isolation, which is going to lead directly to the, uh, the economic model of feudalism rising in the West. So all of this is starting to take place in the time of Zeno. Very good. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Continue to talk about the characters and the background of the Second Council of Constantinople. So we've been talking about Zeno. Uh, he's a fun one. Uh, do we have any more to say about Zeno or do we want to move on to Basiliscus? Well, Basiliscus kind of comes in the middle of Zeno's reign, actually, because this is where his trouble, Zeno's troubles actually kind of catches up with him. Because Zeno, being the Asaurian that he is, is unpopular, and therefore there are all kinds of revolts against his reign. And the first one that happens is actually comes from his own family. His mother-in-law, Verena, basically is plotting some things to get someone else put on the throne, which causes Zeno to flee back to his home country. And while he's there in his home country, and the usurper, usurper by the name of Basiliscus... Uh, takes the throne from 475 to 476. Basiliscus is also a convinced monophysite, just like Zeno was, and he is actually the one who restores Timothy the Cat and Peter the Fuller back to their respective churches. So he's basically trying to do all that he can to make monophysitism the religion of the empire. And he actually makes himself unpopular by directly issuing laws against Chalcedon. He's basically literally saying that it's illegal to uphold Chalcedon. Uh, and on the 9th of April, 475, he issues a decree that says that he upholds the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, and both councils of, of Ephesus. And he's basically trying to settle this whole debate by law. Now, he's going to recant a little bit the following year on the 10th of January, the 470, 476, but he's deeply unpopular in Constantinople because of this. So how would, how would you like to solve uh, church issues by direct edict, Willie? <laughs> well, don't tempt me with too much power, <laughs> but it is pretty efficient. And at least there's a mechanism for actually solving things, I suppose. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, at least officially solving things. Right. Yeah, I mean, th that's what we talked about in the beginning, that even though an edict is is metered out, it doesn't mean people are going to listen to it. And then second, it really depends on who is the leader. Right. I think this is why, well, I don't think, I know, this is why we pray, or at least you should pray every Sunday from the altar uh, for your leaders. And we actually do pray that they would make godly decisions. And what you really want to pray for at the end of the day is their conversion, right? We right. do we do want Christian Christian leaders, but recognizing that sometimes Christian can be a little bit loose uh, when that title or when that is when that adjective um, is applied to a leader. And I know we're not supposed to to put our trust in princes. Nevertheless, to a degree, you have to have some measure of faith in your leaders. And of course, your faith in God has to be greater than that. That's why you pray for them. But well, we faith is is a loaded word. I'll say trust in leaders. Trust is important. Sure. And so, sure. 
So the idea, we are so far beyond in America, the, the notion that we should trust our leaders. We trust experts. You'll, you'll see that a lot now, quote unquote experts. Right. Well, the guy's got a, a couple letters after his name or, you know, he, he wears this coat or he works for this uh, organization. So he's, a, he's an expert. And so we, we, we trust that, but we don't intrinsically trust leaders anymore for whatever reason. And maybe, maybe it's assumed that we never did because even the great kings of the Bible had to deal with grumbling to say the least. Right. And, right. and so, and again, my comments about experts and stuff are not to cast aspersions on any of the legitimate experts out there, but it is very interesting to me what people trust in now, uh, today and, and what they don't trust or do trust depending upon their, depending upon their persuasion. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And so I think the question I'm always asking myself when, when looking at the, the empire is what's worse now we're we're entering into the tail end of Rome's glory, though. I mean, you could argue it's already on the downward turn, at least at this Depends point. Depends on how you define Rome, but go ahead. Well, you, 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 that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm saying the empire, and we'll we'll leave it at that. But you know, you do have some great feats accomplished, and you will have even some great feats still left. There's a sad ending that coming up for uh, the Byzantines. But nevertheless, there is, there, there is some greatness here. But you see what strong men were able to do. But with the history of, say, the Roman emperor, emperors, it gets really complicated, doesn't it? Because would Julius Caesar be so great or would Octavian be so great had Julius Caesar not overstepped before him? Would orthodoxy be able to survive if not for the sword? And I don't mean executions, but I mean without the civil authorities. Now, this is how God ordained it to be. And I think that's very interesting, that the faith is able to survive, orthodoxy is able to survive, because the civil rulers affirm it. Now, now, now I know what you're thinking right now, Zelwyn and others, is that, no, 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 they survive because the Holy Spirit sustains them. Yes, this is absolutely true. And even in the midst of, say, like the Soviets... The church is very much crippled. Don't pretend it's not, but it goes underground. Faith is strengthened, and maybe the small faithful remnant come out stronger. That is true. But the Lord in his providence guides the church and gives them these rulers that are favorable to Christianity, and it's not an accident. And it actually does work for the good of the church because we would not have these formulas. We would not have these clear expressions of the faith were it not for these rulers. And I don't think you can discount that. We we become almost gnostic or or, or even esoteric uh, when it comes to to some of this because we don't like to talk about that. We we think that that government is somehow totally separate from the faith, and it and it isn't. And that's not even the point of the of two kingdoms either, frankly. Right. Right. And and so uh, it's just it's just fascinating that that yeah I guess what I'm saying is sometimes you need the strong man, but it really depends right. on who the man is. And so, therefore, character and individual faith is still very important. Um, it's not enough simply to say, well, I'm a Christian king. That's not enough. It's not sufficient for a, for a Christian government. 
Well, and, and with this too, I think we see the question even more clearly when you're dealing with what do you do with an emperor like Basiliscus, or we're going to find out Zeno after him here in just a minute. What do you do when they're pr- proclaiming something with that same idea in mind, but it's actually not the truth? Exactly. You know, yeah. What, what, do you, what do you do in a situation like that? And this is the unfortunate <laughs> thing. You know, the peasants are illiterate because we don't really know what they're thinking at this time. Right. We, there's no records. I mean, we don't know. We could guess. But how connected to these theological opinions are your, just your regular layman? What does that look like? And, and how does it affect right. them on the ground? Yeah. There, you have theologians who actually complain about, like, especially in Egypt, that uh, theological debate was like the, the gossip of the day, where he says you couldn't <laughs> right. go to the barbershop without getting the question, you know, some major theological question asked of you. Right. You I know, mean, I, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at times, though, I mean, but it's just going to be like, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Well, why? I don't right. know That's right. what I'm supposed to be. And, <laughs> and And so, like, so with... What might what it, where it really affects them are the issues of baptism and the other sacraments, right? Th- that's where it really affects laymen, because depending upon which which theological controversy, you, you might find your baptism invalid, <laughs> or well, something like and especially that. Especially as we especially as we get into the later stages of the debate, where they're actually starting to actively excommunicate each other. Yeah, then the question of the sacraments becomes a very live question. You know, who who do we go with here? Who is the one who is actually setting forth the truth so that I could receive the the Lord's Supper and know that I'm receiving it rightly? So yeah, no, it, yeah. it is a live question. Right. I mean, it, 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 we're just so far away from that. I actually would like uh, theological debates at the barbershop. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I mean, we're not that far away from it. I guess Catholics and Lutherans would have thought about it at least up until the 1900s here, but a little bit different character, I suppose. Um, but it, it is all, it is all very interesting, but it is kind of trickle down from the emperor right. bishops and then down to the, down to the regular people, a very, I mean, what is our mechanism for solving theological disputes, Zellin? Uh, Facebook and not really talking. I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you can you can issue. Yeah. A, 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 I mean, we don't have a mechanism. To, frankly, I mean, uh, uh, maybe some convention maneuvers, but even some of the papers we put out are, are just opinion pieces. At the end of the day, not binding, and right. people are just going to ignore it, like 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 they do anything. You know, it may well be that there is a time to ignore opinion of those above you. I mean, if if you have a monophysite king above you, I think yeah, you should probably ignore his theological opinions. But uh, what what if what if his opinions are correct and you find yourself on the wrong side of the scripture? Right. You know, and that, that's right. the question that individually and especially as pastors, too, we have to ask ourselves. But even even laymen have to ask themselves those questions. And so, uh, yeah, and this is where I go back and forth. Is it easier with an emperor or is it easier when I have uh, supposed freedom of religion and can just say, ah, I'm going to ignore that? Uh, yeah, but you see, the, the trouble with it is, is we kind of assume that the problem which religious freedom tries to solve is like, you know, we're willing to make the sacrifice. We're saying, you know, <laughs> we'll give up religious unity for the sake of political unity. So we've just kind of accepted the fact that the system's broken and we can't go back to any kind of ideal. But I'm not really sure that it's the best situation to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can go on. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's just, gonna be it's gonna be a two parter anyway. So yeah, I mean, it's gonna be a two parter anyway. I mean, it's just just the idea. I mean, the 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 ideal, and this is maybe the, to kind of bring us back to Zeno a little bit here, is this idea that if we have unity in religion, we will also have political unity. That is the ideal. That is why these emperors are so interested in these theological questions, because they're trying to bring peace to the empire. Okay. Which is why when Zeno comes back, and I'm just going to kind of weave this all back in here as a way of making my point. When Zeno comes back, defeats Basiliscus and takes over Constantinople again, he Und- he, un- he revokes all of the edicts of Basiliscus on 17- the 17th of December, 476. And then after some trying to clean up some of his mess, on the 28th of July, 482, he issues an important document called the Henoticon. And the Henoticon is designed to end all of this political debate, just the same way that Basiliscus had done. Okay, but what Zeno is trying to do in issuing this document, which I'll talk about here, you know, the contents of it in a minute, is he's trying to find political stability in religious stability. I mean, he literally says in the Henoticon this quote, since the blameless faith thus preserves us both in both us and Roman affairs. And that's something that he says himself. Now, Basiliscus had actually said the same thing just a little bit before um, in his own decrees that the unifying bond of the flocks of Christ is our own salvation and that of all our subjects, a firm foundation and unshakable defense of our empire. So in other words, they're trying to solve these questions, uh, religious questions, precisely so that they could find political peace, which is something that we've completely sacrificed. So we have Zeno. And then, down, uh, you know, you know, Basiliscus is, is running around in here. Are we really starting to see schism or schism, whatever the official word fitly pronunciation is? Are we starting <laughs> to see that more and more between East and West as a result of these decisions being made here? Yes. And in fact, we actually are going to have a schism come out of this, uh, the so-called Acacian schism, mm-hmm. um, because the Henoticon as a document wanted to end the controversy in the church, but it did it by trying to compromise. Just like the sons of, uh, some of the sons of Constantine had done several hundred years before, they're trying to solve this question by basically striking for a middle ground. So the Henoticon doesn't explicitly condemn Chalcedon, which makes the Monophysites mad, but it also speaks of Chalcedon in negative terms, which makes the Orthodox mad. So it, it pleases nobody. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And because but because of all of this and because the West in particular is fully on board with defending Chalcedon as being totally orthodox, you have this kind of division between the West and the East because of of the the main architect behind the Henoticon, Zeno's kind of advisor by the name of Acacius. And so when the Pope says, "I don't like this," he, uh, Zeno says, "I don't care." And so as long as Acacius is alive, which is for the next 35 years, the East and West are officially divided. Well, where are we as far as Petrine supremacy? We're going to get to that, actually, with the next emperor, uh, Anastasius, because that very question will come up. But as far as this conflict between Pope and Emperor, it's only going to get worse, honestly. And where do you stand on the Pope? (laughs) 
uh, the very Antichrist. Does that make it? Does that make it clear? <laughs> well, oh, he's, he's working for Microsoft now. No, uh, but <laughs> this is where it's interesting for us as Lutherans because we're really going to identify with the East with regard to authority at this right. point. The plurality of the bishops, kind of a, a co-shared authority, which is is the early precedent, frankly. Uh, speaking, you know, uh, it just, as the centuries roll on, Petrine supremacy is kind of forced upon the West. Right. Or how do we want to say this? It's maybe forced is the wrong word, but they're, it's sold to them and they buy it. Right. Right. Uh, the, the, just the centrality of Rome and the chair of St. Peter is so magnified that the Bishop of Rome puts himself up as head of the church universal which is not the same thing that you have in the earliest church history up until the Great Schism. You just don't have that in the, in the East. You will have an ecumenical patriarch, but that is not the same as a pope, even if sometimes maybe he wants to think of himself as a pope. Right. Canonically speaking, that's not how it works. And and so, uh, but we're, we're beginning to see problems that would need to be addressed in the Reformation or that the Reformation seeks to address. And and so the Eastern churches certainly shared, at least with regard to Petrine supremacy, the same reservations that we share. Sure, sure. Yep, and we're going to see that in a big way here, like I said, with the next emperor. But it's at least worth saying, just to kind of finish up Zeno here, Zeno also dies childless, okay? And so after he's kind of trying to do everything that he can to solve all these issues... He doesn't really solve any of them, and he kind of leaves it to his successor, uh, Anastasius I, because Zeno dies in the year 491. That kind of ends his reign. You know what? We're going to go into overtime just a little bit because we need to talk about Anastasius. Tell me, tell me about it. Anastasius I uh, rules from 491 to 518, is also another monophysite emperor, and he's doing everything that he can to really uphold uh, monophysitism. In fact, he's so he's so pro monophysite that this is kind of the high water mark for the whole movement. It it will go downhill from this point. So this is kind of the 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 high point of the whole debate is during the reign of this emperor. Mm-hmm. He's interestingly named Decorus or nicknamed Decorus because he has two different colored eyes, which I think is you know just an interesting little historical tidbit. But Anastasius will basically uphold the Hanotic, Zeno's Henoticon for most of his reign. So he's just trying to preserve what his predecessor had done and try to make that the official position of the empire. So that's really what he's doing religiously. Just a little historical tidbits that we can talk about here. He becomes the emperor and he marries uh, Zeno's wife, probably at her own making. And as he's coming into power the bishop in Constantinople actually refuses to crown him as the emperor unless he signs a document promising to uphold Chalcedon, which in fact he does. But then Anastasius later denounces the the bishop as Nestorian and has him deposed. Okay. Anastasius also interestingly drives out the Asaurians who had been gaining power under Zeno, and there's a small civil war that goes on that eventually ends in victory. So what you're seeing here again is an emperor who is trying to deal with these political and military threats and trying to solve religious uh, questions at the same time. 
In fact, you're going to see in 502, for example, the Persians actually starting to come to war again for the first time since the days of Theodosius II. And so we, we start to see this increasing kind of war going on within the empire. And so Anastasius is doing everything that he can to hold his empire together, which is why he's upholding the Henoticon. So he fumbles on religion, but practically speaking, he's pretty good as far as civil government goes. Right. He's like one of the very few emperors who actually leaves a budget surplus. <laughs> he doesn't completely wreck the economy. <laughs> right. Take notes. <laughs> he wasn't a big fan of tattoos either. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. And a few of his other things. I mean, there are some good things about this emperor. But the thing, the things to remember about him in particular is that he is doing everything that he can to uphold monophysite positions. So uh, the, the new leader, the new monophysite bishop leader by the name of Severus is supported by him. Uh, Severus is very highly regarded, even in monophysite churches today, as kind of being like the guy, the leading monophysite. So his you know, being supported by the emperor is a very important thing. And Anastasius also tricks a few Chalcedonian bishops into resigning or being removed. This also sparks some wars that, and some civil unrest that's going on. But like I said, he's not a totally bad emperor. He does have some good things that are going on for him. He's just much more interested in solving this question by forcing a monophysitism on the empire. And in fact, mm -hmm. and this is probably where we can close, just as a quick little discussion of this, in 494, and this is getting back to your original point, Pope Galasius, who was the pope at the time, reacting against Anastasius's policies of monophysitism and the ongoing schism, which was still, go you know, which was still going on, writes a letter to the emperor in which he declares that Episcopal authority is actually greater than temporal authority. And he says it in basically those terms. So you're asking the question of, you know, what was happening with Petrine supremacy? Glossius is basically saying, yeah, the Pope is greater than the emperor. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And then you even get, and this is more for Justin, but it, it does deal with the Henoticon, where you get that Oriental schism too. Mm -hmm. Justin comes in, unites the church again, but the uh, Alexandrian and Antiochian patriarchs embrace Miaphysitism, and they become the Oriental Orthodox churches. Right, right. Which I would assume there are Orthodox Alexandrian and Antiochian patriarchs too, separate from the Oriental Orthodox. Right. Well, nowadays, yeah. Thinks how I think <laughs> nowadays. I think how it works. You know, because the Oriental Orthodox today says, "Well, there's no difference in our doctrine. We just use different words." Right. And I think the big O Orthodox are like, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so it, it is a time of, you know, the, the rumblings of schism are starting to happen, which is, which is not something the church is accustomed to heretofore. Yeah. A full 500 years before the great schism, too, which is important to remember. Right. Exactly. Well, that's going to wrap things up, Zellin. Any, any last words? I think what we'll get to in our two-part episode here is we're going to be talking about the Emperor Justin, and he's going to be kind of a quick little discussion, and then we're going to dive right into Justinian and the council itself. So stay tuned for the, the upcoming episode in which we will talk about the council itself as well as the doctrinal issues at work. Very good. Thanks so much, Zellin. 
This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. Confessing, therefore, that he is God, we do not deny that he is also man. And when we say that he is man, we do not deny that he is also God. For if he was God alone, how could he suffer? How could he be crucified? And how could he die, since these things are alien to God? But if he was a mere man, how could he conquer through suffering? How could he save? How could he bring to life, since these things were accomplished for the sake of man? So then the same has suffered, the same saves and conquers through his suffering, the same is God, the same is man, the two natures exist together as one. The Emperor Justinian